you're listening to sermon audio from Piperton Baptist Church in Piperton, Tennessee. For more information on how you can get connected with PBC, please visit www.pipertonbaptist.com. Y'all, one day we're going to be right. You hear me? One day we foolish are going to be wise. When those skies split open and this earth sees our God return, we're not going to be fools anymore. Amen. I want you to turn with me to Mark chapter 5, verse 21. Mark 5, 21. As Christians, we ask a lot of questions, right? We read a Bible verse and uh, we think, you know, what, what does this mean? Or maybe we've had something bad happen in our lives and we look at God and we say, what, what's up with that? You know, what are you doing here? we got questions, God. Uh, but if, it may surprise you that God has a few questions for us. <laughs> uh, he, he Actually, a lot of questions. Uh, as a matter of fact, Jesus in the New Testament asked at least 307 questions. Others say it's as high as 339. And uh, some say that Jesus was asked 183 questions, but only answers three of them. Others say he answered at least eight of them. Either way, for every question Jesus answers, he asks over 20, right? Definitely a biblical fact worth our attention. So we're going to take some Sundays and look at a new series called Questions Jesus Asked. But why does he do this? Why does he ask questions, right? Well, his questions teach us about his character, they teach us about our sin, and they draw us closer to him and strengthen our faith. Now, obviously, we're not going to go through 339 questions. I'd be sitting on my 11th anniversary with y'all if I preached a sermon every Sunday on that. But I do want to tackle uh, some of them. And today we're kicking off with a question Jesus asked a sick woman, a woman who had exhausted all of her income trying to find a solution for her ailment. But it had only actually gotten worse. And this true story, it's also actually told over in uh, Matthew 9, verse 18, and in Luke uh, chapter 8, verse 40, because, you know, there's a parallel of the Gospels. They, they don't contradict each other, but they do complement each other. But the Gospel of Mark contains the most information about this particular story. And I'm going to let you stay seated today and honor God by listening to his word, because there's a lot of good stuff here to listen to and I want you to concentrate on the story. Mark chapter 5 verse 21 these are the words of God. And when Jesus had crossed again uh, in the boat to the other side a great crowd gathered about him and he was beside the sea. Then came one of the rulers of the synagogue Jairus by name and seeing him this ruler he fell down at his feet and implored him earnestly saying my little daughter is at the point of death. Come and lay your hands on her so that she may be made well and live. And he went with him. So here goes Jesus following Jairus to his house to, to, to check this situation out. And it says there at the end of verse 24, and a great crowd followed him and thronged about him. And there was a woman, meanwhile, who had had a discharge of blood for 12 years and who had suffered much under many physicians and had spent all that she had and was no better but rather grew worse. She had heard the reports about Jesus and came up behind him in the crowd and touched his garment. For she said, if I touch even his garments, I'll be made well. And immediately the flow of blood dried up and she felt in her body that she was healed of her disease. 
And Jesus, perceiving in himself that power had gone out from him, immediately turned about in the crowd and said, Who touched my garments? And his disciples said to him, You see the crowd pressing around you, and yet you say, Who touched me? And he looked around to see who had done it. But the woman, knowing what had happened to her, came in fear and trembling and fell down before him and told him the truth, the whole truth. Verse 34, And he said to her daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace and be healed of your disease. While he was still speaking, there came from the ruler's house some who said, Your daughter is dead. They were speaking to Jairus. Why trouble the teacher any further? But overhearing what they said, Jesus said to the ruler of the synagogue, Do not fear, only believe. A miracle wedged inside another miracle. Amen. May God bless the reading of his word. I want to ask Rodney Perkins to come and ask God's blessings on the message today. Working security today, so he's got his outfit on. Thank you, Rodney. Let's pray. Father, I come to you uh, this morning humbled by your grace. Uh, Lord, I thank you for this church and this church family that really does feel like a family. Um, Lord, I ask for a special prayer this morning for uh, our first responders uh, with everything that's crazy that's going on in the city. Uh, Lord, I ask that you be with Went this morning, that uh, you give him the words to speak and uh, give us the hearts to hear. In your name I pray. Amen. 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 Thank you. There's a lot of, uh, to learn from the questions of Jesus. You know, and you know, sometimes we need to stop thinking of our own questions and listen to the ones that our Creator is asking us. And here that question is, who touched me? Which to me is a very peculiar question for someone who's omniscient, who's all-knowing. But Jesus, remember, asks questions for a purpose. And the first purpose that we see for Jesus' question to this woman is to show that God's not troubled by our trouble. God's not troubled by our trouble. And that doesn't mean that God's not troubled by our sin, right? Outside of the cleansing blood of Jesus, right? And, and what I'm saying is that our needs are not trivial or troublesome to Christ. And here first we notice that Jesus never gets tired of people. Now Jesus became physically tired, right? Because he, he was God incarnate. He had become flesh. John 1, 14, the word became flesh and dwelt among us. Hebrews 4, verse 15, for we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weakness, but one who in every aspect, in every respect, has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. So Jesus, as a human, became tired, but he was never tired of humans. <laughs> Not like us. We get sick of people. We say crazy things like, I can only take so much of your family. <laughs> right? I see you right now. All right, this is enough. All right? I need some me time. Leave me alone. That's us, but that's not our God. Sometimes we think God thinks like us, <laughs> but his ways are higher than our ways. And that is, we're dead wrong. Back, in, back up two chapters in Mark, chapter three, verse one. Jesus entered the synagogue and a man was there with a withered hand. And they watched Jesus to see whether he would heal him on the Sabbath so that they might accuse him. How wicked. And he said to the man with the withered hand, come here. And he said to them, so he's got the man with the withered hand by him. And he said to these Pharisees, is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm? To save life or to kill? But they were silent. 
and he looked around at them with anger, grieved at their hardness of heart. And he said to the man, stretch out your hand. He stretched it out and his hand was restored. The Pharisees went out and immediately held counsel with the Herodians against him how to destroy him. Jesus' grief, even with these wicked Pharisees, was not against them like, I hate you. He was grieved by the hardness of their hearts and the withered hand of this troubled man. The earthly troubles and the eternal troubles of people concerns him. If we continue in Mark 3, verse 7, Jesus withdrew with his disciples to the sea, and a great crowd followed. When the great crowd heard all that he was doing, they came to him, and he told his disciples to have a boat ready for him because of the crowd, lest they crush him. For he had healed many, so that all who had diseases pressed around him to touch him. So the only reason Jesus was distancing himself physically from the people was pragmatic. Right? You can't speak into a crowd that's crushing you. Right? So he, that was the only reason, not because he didn't want to be with them. I was in an Indian village one time. I had just, uh, my family had just arrived in India to live there and serve the Lord there. And I was out in a remote village, actually in a slum that was built on a trash pile. But I, my, my language coach uh, had, was also a pastor, in, and he had been to this village and, it, and uh, was going there to share the gospel. And so I was helping coach him to some better methods for doing that. And so we went together out into this remote village in northern India. I get there, uh, you know, we go out in, in the area and telling people that we're going to gather. And we have a, a meeting that, that night. 60 people are there, and 30 or 40 of them gave their hearts to Jesus. It was really incredible. And I slept in this, on this dirt floor in this, this hut out in this village. Of course, it's 10 roofs. I got up the next, I woke up the next morning, and of course, the whole house is, you know, maybe 10 by 10. And I wake up, and there's 100 people looking at me. I mean, physically staring at me. I'm like, am I, am I in heaven? You know, is, is it only Indians in heaven? And uh, so I, I got up and we were going to gather for this meeting, but it had gotten crazy, so, so crazy that I could not physically leave that house. And I'm not talking about because I was scared, I'm talking about the people were so packed in. I had to crawl out of the house. I'm not exaggerating up onto a ledge. I had to get on the roof and it, you know, it was an area this big and it, it was so crowded. There, there was no room to stand like that, you know, just smush. And so I had to walk over to this high spot and, and I jumped down on this high spot to, to share uh, the gospel with this area. It was really <laughs> too out of hand, bad planning on my part. But that's this idea, you know, it's not, Jesus doesn't want to be away from people because he doesn't love them. He, he wants to be with them, but they're crushing him. So he's got to get in the boat. And even when Jesus was alone, he wasn't lounging on his bed in his master suite watching Hulu, all right? Mark 4, verse 10, and when he was alone, those around him with the 12, so he's got more than 12 people around him when he's alone, asked him about the parables. Church, do you get this? Jesus wants to be with us. I was singing and weeping over there a minute ago because I still don't understand that. 
I know how wicked my heart is. I know how wicked you are, whether you think you are or not. (laughs) I read the Bible and God already told me you're a sinner. And I believe him more than I believe you. And your smiley little Jesus faces. Perfect. Everything's peachy at home. I'm not on the brink of divorce. No, my kids are perfect. (laughs) Y'all ever seen that commercial? That guy, it's a 20-year-old commercial. He's driving around in his front yard on a lawnmower in front of a big palatial home. And he's and he's talking and he goes, Help me, somebody help me. I'm drowning in debt. I'm in debt up to my eyeballs, you know, and he looks like the perfect wealthy American, you know. That's how I feel every time I sing. I'm like, help me, Jesus. I'm I do not have it all together. I preached a sermon uh, about here over five years, almost five years ago, about this word with that, that represents God's desire to be with us. And I gave several examples, biblical examples of this word with, this word with, which represents relationships, is seen in eternity past by the Trinity. There has never been a moment in the realm of infinite time where relationships didn't exist. God the Father with God the Son with the Holy Spirit from eternity past before the creation of the world. There's never been a moment in eternity where there's not been relationship. Number two, uh, with was evident at creation. God walked in the garden of Eden with Adam and Eve. And the the words there represent something he did repeatedly. uh, Number three, with is modeled in Old Testament examples where God took Enoch and Elijah up to heaven, you know, where God spoke directly to Abraham and Moses, where God had mental relationships set up all through the Old Testament, Moses and Joshua and so on. With this modeled in all these New Testament examples, Barnabas with Paul, Aquila and Priscilla taking Apollos aside. There's all these relationships in Scripture. In the uh, Romans 16 alone, I think Paul mentions 36 or 35 names, names, real names, like Sue Ann Murray, like Went Fox, like Holden, like Vic. I mean, he's mentioning real names. So he wants to be with us. And then we mentioned that with was, uh, number five, was defined in the very name of Jesus. 750 years before Jesus was even born, they named him with. Uh, Isaiah 7. His name shall be called Wonderful Counselor. It's also in Isaiah 8 and Isaiah 9, I believe. One one, One time there, it's actually translated as its meaning, God with us. But the other two times it's mentioned as it's his actual name. The name of God is with. <laughs> think about that next time you think he doesn't want to be with you. And of course, with is exemplified most in the life and saving sacrifice of Jesus incarnate, come, become flesh. This woman in Mark 5 may have seemed sheepish, but don't misread her humble approach or Jairus's humble approach bowing before him. Don't misunderstand that as them misunderstanding the receptivity of Jesus. They weren't just bowing to him as some, you know, like, like he's going to beat me. They're, they're bowing before him because they knew they could approach him as if Jesus is troubled by us. Friend, listen to the truth of Jesus. If you're feeling frustrated over your own life and your own sin, guilt, and shame that you might rightly feel that you need to leave at the cross and ask God to forgive and it'll be forgiven. You shouldn't interpret that as Jesus not wanting to be with you. Don't put that on him. Don't misrepresent the God of the Bible. Ah, you know, he did this to me. Don't you say that. You, You watch your tongue when you're speaking about a holy God. 
That's your own insecurity and the deception of the devil to make you think God somehow pulled up in your, your drive, you know, you pulled up in God's driveway and he says, oh no, look who's out front, turn the lights off. Let me tell you something. When you pull up in God's driveway, he wants you to be there. If you knock on the door of Christ, he put events into your life to make you knock. <laughs> you wouldn't have wanted to knock on his door if he hadn't put events in motion to bring it to your attention. One of my favorite verses uh, to comfort guilty sinners who are scared to come to the cross is Hebrews 4.16. Let us then with confidence, not arrogance, confidence, draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Now, we don't need to be like fair weather Christians. You know, we only come to God when there's something big. We're always in need. You ever stop and listen to uh, the lyrics of songs from your childhood, you know, that you thought were really, you like the beat of, and you're like, ooh, that's a great song. And then you, you grow up and you listen to the lyrics, and you're like, that's, that's an awful song, <laughs> right? George Harrison sang the words, I got my mind set on... I got, right? And you think, oh, what a, what a romantic little, you know, he's really pursuing this girl, you know, he really thinks a, a lot of her until you start to listen to the other verses. But it's going to take money, a whole lot of spending money, going to take plenty of money to do it, to do it, to do it, to do it right, right? Next verse. It's going to take time, a whole lot of precious time, Going to take patience and time to do it, to do it. I'm starting to wonder just how worth it this girl is. You know what I mean? <laughs> Dude's about to spend a fortune on a girl who does nothing but test his patience and rob his time, his precious time. Right? Starting to wonder. But that's not how God pursues us, is it? Romans 5, 8 says, While we were yet sinners... Christ died for us. People were sinning. While they were sinning, he was dying for the sin they were actively committing while he was on the cross. Think about that. Before this woman ever set her mind on drawing near to Christ, he set his trajectory on crossing her path at just the right time to meet her need. Jesus doesn't get tired of people. I'm sure by now you've seen all those, uh, those commercials for He Gets Us, those He Gets Us commercials. Friend, let me just complete that sentence. He gets us to intersect on the pathways of His holiness and righteous judgment and love so that we can see the supernatural steps He is taking to meet our needs. That's what He gets. He gets Himself to us. I don't know how because we fight Him tooth and nail to stay away. Jesus isn't tired of us. Second, Jesus uses our trouble to teach. He takes our trouble and he turns it into a lesson. Now, it's sad that the disciples who spent the majority of their time with Jesus often proved to be the least aware of his character. <laughs> You're around him more than anybody else and you still don't get it? And man, they asked some stupid questions. Now, I know this goes against words that you've heard all your life. You know, to God, there are no stupid questions. I may have even uttered those words before, and if I did, it was stupid, all right? 
Now, I'm sure there, there, there are other words for stupid. I do apologize to you parents who are teaching. You, you don't like to use this word in your home. I don't go around calling people stupid out loud. I whisper under my breath where only I can hear it. And I could have used other words. I could have used dumb or mindless uh, or senseless or dense or brainless or foolish or idiotic. I just thought stupid was the right word, right? Stupid. I believe, and the Bible demonstrates, and I have observed in my limited time on this earth, as you have, that Christians often ask God stupid questions. And I know James 1 verse 5 says, if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask of God who gives generously to all without reproach. Sure, amen. Asking for wisdom isn't stupid. Right? But if you're asking God if you should cheat on your taxes or cheat on your wife, if you're asking God if you should read your Bible or come to church or pray more, that's a stupid question. All right? So I'm not talking about asking for wisdom or most prayer requests. Now, I do think we need to be careful that our prayer requests aren't loaded up in the I want department with no attention to the lost the need for more workers in the kingdom of God, the need for God to give me boldness to share my faith and resist temptation, right? And I know, listen, even in the middle of that, I still believe that praying for sunshine on your luxurious vacation, that's not stupid, all right? Fine, ask that prayer. And one of the old uh, Pink Panther uh, movies from the 60s, uh, Clouseau, the Pink Panther, the arrogant, absent-minded Clouseau asked the hotel clerk, does your dog bite? She said, no, my dog has never bitten anyone ever. And he bends down and goes, oh, sweet little puppy. And then it attacks him and bites his arm and he jumps up and says, you said your dog did not bite. She said, I'm sorry, sir, but that's not my dog. <laughs> Sometimes questions aren't the problem it's, we're not asking the right ones, right? So what exactly qualifies a stupid question to God? First, questions that doubt Christ's intent. That's a stupid question. How many times has God said, I forgot the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans for your downfall and for evil to rob your future and consume your hope. Is that what Jeremiah 29, 11 says? Or does it say, I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord. Plans for welfare, not for evil, to give you a future and a hope. Does God say, they that wait upon the Lord shall lose their strength. They shall fall from great heights, grow weary in the race, and faint before the finish line. No. Isaiah 40, verse 31 says, they who wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings like eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. Well, sounds kind of stupid when you put it that way, Pastor. Yeah, yeah. And yet we doubt the intentions of God over and over and over. And I confess that when I fall into the, to the trap of doubting God, I feel ashamed and dumb. I feel like my doubting is insulting to God. Mark 5, verse 30, and Jesus perceiving in himself that power had gone out from him, immediately turned about in the crowd and said, who touched my garments? And his disciples, <laughs> they said to him, you see the crowd pressing around you, and yet you say, who touched me? I mean, I could almost see them rolling their eyes at Jesus, you know? Jesus. <laughs> You're rolling your eyes at Jesus. 
You ever roll your eyes at Jesus? I'm sorry, did you not see, were you there in the synagogue a couple chapters before where we were, you know, a dude had that withered hand and I like, I healed that. Did you see that? What about right after that when we got on the boat and went over there and there was that crazy demon-possessed guy who was breaking chains and living in the tombs like a madman. And I cast those demons out of him and they went into those 2,000 pigs that ran off the cliff. Did you see that? What are you thinking? Oh, wait, you weren't. Sorry, that's what I would have said. Thank God I'm not God. Amen. Jesus actually doesn't even rebuke the doubt of his disciples. He just proceeds to win. <laughs> I actually love athletes. You know, I mean, athletes nowadays, they all talk a little smack. Sometimes it's in fun. Sometimes it's arrogance and pride. But I love to see those few athletes that they'll get beat on a play. And then the next play, they come out and just crush their opponent. They never said a word. They just let their action speak. That's what Jesus did here. His, his disciples asked a stupid question. He didn't even, I don't even think he threw up a hand. Like, you know, he just kept on. He just ignored the question. Listen, friend, God wants you to win. He wants your success. He wants your peace. And I'm not some false prophet, feel-good preacher. But this is true. It's a biblical truth. There are stipulations to that peace, right, and that forgiveness. But he wants it. We're not a tool that God, we're not a toy of God to make Jesus happy like he's a spoiled son of God. We're people he wants to be with. The disciples of all people should know that God has a plan. Maybe one we don't understand, but one we should trust. Piper, we need to watch our attitudes toward our global leaders. Look, you don't have to tell me it's raining if we're both outside soaking wet. All right? I, I kind of know, dude. You don't have to tell me. Act like you've been here before. I grow tired of myself and other believers who grow troubled by trouble. And instead of saying, man, <laughs> I can't wait to see what God's up to here. The events of this world are crazy. God's about to do something. No, we, we don't do that. We jump on the bandwagon of Grumblers Anonymous and complain about everything like it's our job. God help us. The disciples should have known God was up to something because the woman sure did. Listen to this. She believed everything she had heard secondhand and they forgot everything they had seen firsthand. <laughs> Church, the cross and our freedom is God's intent. Questions themselves aren't bad. We're actually studying the questions of Jesus. But questions that reveal unbiblical views of God's intentions are actually embarrassing. And even more so when they're laid against the backdrop of this woman's great faith. Church, when troubles come, don't roll your eyes. Look for some loving lesson for Christ to teach you. I know that's hard. I'm not saying that's easy. I'm not saying I understand your pain. I'm not, I understand you can be in a spiritual valley where you just see no hope. You're in a depressed funk and you feel like you're never going to get out. I, 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 I'm not saying that it's easy, but it is possible. Questions that doubt God's intent are less than intelligent. Second, questions that doubt Christ's knowledge. We actually pay doctors to diagnose. We go to doctors, sit in waiting rooms, 
and ask them to tell us what's wrong with us and offer some pathway to healing only for us to go home and ignore it. We could have saved the credit card swipe and the co-pays and stayed at home and ignored professional advice from our, you know, from our, from our own home. That's what I do. <laughs> Why follow Jesus if you only see him through the lens of human knowledge limitations? Seems kind of less than sensible to not trust in the knowledge of the God we follow. Colossians 1.15, he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation, for by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him, and he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And there's no question mark at the end of that passage. Someone once said, where God places a period, let no man put a question mark. I mean, this woman thought Jesus is so powerful that if I can just touch his garment, I'll be healed. And the disciples thought Jesus is so weak, he can't even discern who touched him. What a dumb thing to ask Jesus. The woman came to God expecting. She's not asking why. She's not pointing the fingers of bitterness or false accusations. She's not questioning the knowledge of Jesus. She's expecting the slightest touch to be enough. Enough. He is enough. Just the touch is enough. It's sad that Jesus' closest disciples still act as though they're smarter than him. Can I just say it? We're not smarter than God. I grow so tired of my small ex expectations, my small prayers, my small goals, and my little bitty controllable limited knowledge, Jesus. Forgive me, Lord. Can we just say that in our hearts right now? God, forgive us for when we think we're smarter than you. You are omniscient. You are holy and you understand things for my benefit that I do not. Mark 5, 28, she said, if I touch even his garments, I will be made well. Sure enough, immediately the flow of blood dried up and she felt in her body that she was healed of her disease. God put a teachable moment for his disciples in the middle of a healing story that was already in the middle of another healing story of a, uh, Jesus raising Jairus' daughter from the dead. <laughs> what looks random to us is a series of teachable moments in the thoughtful, intentional, loving plans of our king who is on his throne and knows what he's doing. Jesus never gets tired of people. He actually uses our trouble to teach us. And third, Jesus makes our trouble our testimony. When uh, our family was living, uh, serving in uh, India, um, my wife would go with other women to, um, into the brothels. There's a, in, in Mumbai where we live, there was a large community of prostitutes. It's not like in Memphis where one may hang out on a corner or you swipe left on an app. This was like a whole community where, where 
college boys would go get their kicks. But Vicky and a team of girls would go in there and teach, get, gather some women together and teach them the Bible. And they would have to ride this train. If you've never been to India, you don't understand this. But the trains are so packed, you can physically sometimes pick your feet up and get carried into the train. It's just that and so it was so crowded one day she was in there with her girlfriends and they were you know they had their hands uh, they were holding the bars above them you know packed in so tight like sardines and her friend looked at her and said hey Vicki you know, I'll hold your water bottle for you if you need me to and she said that's not my hand <laughs> like they're so tight they can't even tell the difference you know she's staring at her and it's like no that's somebody else's water bottle right Jesus was in this crowded place right where he wanted to be, and he asked, who touched me? It's packed. People are squeezing in on every side. But Jesus asked the question, not because he didn't know, but because he wanted everyone else to know. Y'all catch this. Jesus knew the woman had been hemorrhaging for a dozen years. He knew. He knew she'd spent every last penny on trying to solve this problem to be healed and had only gotten worse. And he knew she was desperate to be healed. He also knew that she was taking a risk to be out in public to touch a rabbi, which they, people that didn't even believe Jesus was God, they believed, they saw him as a rabbi. And to touch a rabbi would, in her state, would mean, would make him by Jewish law ceremoniously unclean, according to scholars. Jesus asked the question because he wanted her to speak up. He wanted her story to be told. Listen to Mark 5, 33. We read, Then the woman, knowing what had happened to her, came and fell at his feet, trembling with fear, and told him the truth. The crowd hadn't left. What she's saying to him is being heard by everyone. She told her story publicly. Everyone there suddenly knew who she was. They knew what her condition had been. They knew how she had been healed by simply touching Jesus' garment in faith. Now we already mentioned the demon-possessed man that Jesus healed, but did you know that he wanted to go and be with Jesus, which sounds like a good thing. Oh, Jesus is going to gather more disciples. Jesus actually said to him in Mark 5, verse 19, he did not permit him to come and go with him, but said to him, go home to your friends and tell them how much the Lord has done for you and how he has had mercy on you. And he went away and began to proclaim in the Decapolis how much Jesus had done for him and everyone marveled. I think as Christians, we spend too much time asking God why he, he let something happen instead of proving why he let it happen. Our obedient, humble responses to Christ are so often the key that unlocks the vault of God's answers to our questions. Right? If we would testify to His greatness, the answers might come. Do you know that that revival that's broken out in Asbury, I don't know if y'all have been watching this revival, but you could look it up, you too. You know how that all started? Some of y'all research this and know this. It was a normal chapel service at their college. And one kid, one college student stood up and began to confess what a wretch he was. And that's when revival broke out. <laughs> one guy began to talk. And now it's been like 11 last, I don't know how many days they're into this. People are outside lined up from other countries to get in to multiple chapels now. There's constant singing and worshiping and praying. By the way, the unsung heroes of this story 
or all those thousand little conversations about Jesus that were happening that that woman heard. Mark 5, 27, and she says she had heard the reports about Jesus. Boy, I'd love to know who was giving those reports, wouldn't you? They're the unsung heroes of this story. A thousand little Jesus reports. And I know y'all do this. I see them on emails. I see them on Facebook posts and social media. Just giving God glory for something he's done in your life. Answers to prayer. Testimonies of God. I got to hear a testimony this week of a guy who's going to be speaking at Faith Walk with Rodney Perkins and them soon. And his testimony was just phenomenal. What, what looks like sinful, wicked brokenness actually is what caused the revival. I don't know how he does it. I don't know how God takes the worst thing in my life and makes it a launching pad for my testimony. I don't understand that. I don't want to go out and sin to have a better testimony. But God takes my sin and turns it into something wonderful for him. Church, our, our faith by itself can't heal anything, right? I don't want you to get confused, right? But as the ESV says, the woman's faith was the divinely appointed means by, for her bodily healing as well as for her spiritual salvation. I don't just pull my bootstraps up and have enough faith to make God love me. He already loves me. He's already pursued me. He's already set things in motion that, to make me want to knock on his door. You understand that? He loves me. He loves you. You're not troublesome to him. Your troubles are no trouble to him. I love the words of Jesus in Mark 5, 34, and I'll end with this. Daughter, daughter. <laughs> I, ju I just met you. You're going to call me daughter? Because mm -hmm. he already knew you before the foundations of the world. Mark 5, 34, daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace and be healed of your disease. I pray we would have the faith to stop asking so many questions of God and start, stop, start proving why these things are happening in our life. Prove it. Prove God's greatness in your failures by giving him glory for forgiveness and salvation through the cross. Would you stand? Father God, we worship you today. <laughs> we have been brought right up to your throne with the worship and music this morning. We've gotten to participate in offerings and giving and singing and fellowship already. But Lord, we need something to happen that's private between you and me. We, I need to do business with you. I need to hear your word and, and I need you to take that scriptural truth and stick it in some fertile soil down inside my soul. Like I want to see it bloom like the buttercups I see popping up everywhere. I want that your word to do that in me. I don't want to just think about that and go, man, that was a good sermon. I want to look at my life and, and it prove that I heard your words from the Bible, not from Pastor Went, but from the Bible, the preserved, holy, inspired words of God. I heard your words. They spoke to me and your spirit spoke to me and moved me. And I want to call on your name right now. I don't understand everything there is about you, Jesus, but I know this. 
You want to be with me. My troubles aren't your trouble and I'm in trouble. I'm a wicked sinner and I need you. You cry out to Jesus right now and I promise you this, on the authority of God's word, he'll save you. Say, Lord, I need you. I believe you died for me. I believe you rose again. That's about as much as I know. That's enough. If you understand the salvation of Jesus, that he was buried in a tomb and rose on the third day and by faith alone, in his grace alone, you can be saved. Father God, I pray that you would let people call on your name and be saved. I pray for others that may not be part of a church family and they're already Christians, they know you, but they want to come and serve you. They've been pew potatoes for too long and they want to get up and move in the direction of service to you. I pray they would do that now. I pray they'd start to, you'd embolden us to share our testimonies with others at work, over dinners, over scheduled lunch dates, you know, where we can give testimony to you. Whatever our decisions are, I pray we would make them in a way that honors you. In Jesus' name, amen. This has been Sermon Audio from Piperton Baptist Church in Piperton, Tennessee. For more information on how you can get connected with PBC, please visit www.pipertonbaptist.com.